BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, everybody. I'm Lou Dobbs, and welcome to The Great America Show. Delighted to have you with us on this historic day. Regrettably, what makes this day historic is the Marxist Dems' decision to, for the first time in American history, indict a former president and the presumptive Republican nominee in 2024, who are the same person, of course, Donald J. Trump. President Trump is scheduled to enter through the one Hogan Place entrance of the Manhattan Courthouse at 11 o'clock today for processing, which includes indignities such as having his mugshot taken, fingerprinting, and because all of this is political persecution, the district attorney may insist on handcuffs. That's right, handcuffs. And he is just low enough to do just that. President Trump is scheduled to be arraigned in Manhattan Supreme Court Justice Juan Merchant's courtroom on the 15th floor, where Mr. Trump is expected to be arraigned at 2.15 this afternoon. He and his attorneys will then learn the contents of the sealed indictment, and we may learn that Judge Merchant will put a gag order on President Trump. A gag order. Can you imagine? The mockery of any judge ordering a presidential candidate not to speak about anything would be a violation of his First Amendment rights. All of this is an abomination, as former AG William Barr himself put it. And Barr is no fan of President Trump, as we know. Forcing a president, a presidential candidate, to endure this circus is un-American in every imaginable way, and likely unconstitutional. At least that's my opinion, but we want a really professional, highly educated legal opinion on this, don't we? So our guest today is all that and more. Joining us today is Professor Bradley Smith, who teaches law at Capital University Law School in Columbus, Ohio. He is also the founder of the Institute for Free Speech and served as commissioner, vice chairman, and chairman of the Federal Election Commission. Professor Smith, it is great to have you with us. Thank you for being here. Welcome to the show. What is your impression of this spectacle, this unprecedented case? All right. Well, first, Lou, thanks. It's great, it's great to be here with you. Um, so obviously, we haven't seen the actual indictment yet. It's still sealed. Uh, but um, it, it strikes me as being uh, both A, based on very fl flimsy legal theory, and B, just prudentially being something that is probably unwise to bring. You know, I hear a lot of people saying, well, you know, no person is above the law. But the question, you might turn that question around. Do you think if this were, say, uh, uh, an ordinary congressman from upstate New York, Republican or Democrat, they would be bringing this charge? You know, I think the answer just kind of feels like no. And that suggests that, that this is not really a case of showing that no person is above the law. Rather, it's using prosecutorial discretion to get somebody you've decided to get. At what point does the court take notice, uh, put some sort of credit to the context of what is happening here? Seven years of political persecution of Donald J. Trump, not a single instance of wrongdoing found, 
And here we go again from a local prosecutor in New York going after the president in what is clearly, to me at least as a layman, it is an abuse of power on its face. Your thoughts? Yeah, I'm sure we'll get to talking more about the details of the you know the prosecutor's legal theory. But in terms of you know the idea that this is a, a persecution, I, one of the things is that courts are very reluctant to wade into that. In other words, if there is a legal grounds for the prosecution, the courts are very reluctant to get into why the prosecutor brought the case. And and I think if we, as outrageous as it is, Tessa, you know, if you kind of sit back, you can see why courts don't want to do that, because you could start second guessing, you know, almost everything. So it's probably good jurisprudence to avoid that. The unfortunate thing is that that then means, you know, we have to be able to count on our prosecutors to exercise reasonable discretion. And, and you know, the only real solution to that is probably to have uh, a political one. And unfortunately, in New York City, I don't think you're going to get a political resolution to the prosecutor's behavior. And that political uh, result will uh, be determined whether it is a, a jury trial or a judge because the, the ratio of Democrats to Republicans in New York City is something around eight to one. Uh, th this business about a jury of his peers, I find that hard to, to even keep a straight face when I hear them suggest that's the way it'll work because this is great, uh, great justice uh, in our legal system. Well, it will be hard to figure out where they're going to get a jury from, you know, if they're going to find some people who've been living in Antarctica without web access for the last seven years or something like that. Uh, it's, it's going to be very hard, I think, to impanel a, a, a fair jury. And, and unfortunately, in this kind of case, you know, oftentimes when you do get a jury, uh, it, it's I guess we'll just kind of say less than ideal. You feel like it's not people who, who uh, you know, have, have thought about some of these things at length. But uh, in the end, I have pretty good confidence in the jury system. You know, the closest prosecution I can think of to anything like this was uh, former Democrat John Edwards was prosecuted down in North Carolina a few years ago. On a somewhat similar case, he had donors that had been paying living expenses for a woman that he had apparently impregnated. Um, and although the prosecutor brought the charges and the judge let it go to trial, the jury did acquit. Edwards. So, um, you know, we can hope that, uh, the, you know, the, the right thing will be done at the right time. I, do you, I don't want you to have, <laughs> I would, I would like you to make this, uh, judgment, which do you think would be the most fair minded jury, uh, of, uh, a Democrat or a Republican? Would it be in North Carolina or would it be, uh, in, uh, <laughs> In Manhattan, New York. Well, well you know, I, I have to say, I don't know where Edwards was tried off the top of my head. I can't remember. He might have been tried in, you know, in the Triangle area there, rally, which is pretty liberal enclave. So, so I, your skepticism is understood, uh, but I can't really comment further on it. Well, as we go, as we go forward with this, uh, I, my instincts, uh, are, as I say, as a layman, as a citizen, a proud citizen, I must say, uh, I, if I'm Donald Trump at some point, I have to say, go to hell. Uh, I've, I've gone through this for seven years. Um, I have represented the American people uh, as their president. Uh, I'm entitled to respect uh, on the part uh, of everyone, whether they're a Marxist Dem or uh, a, a conservative Republican. And I just, I'm tired of it. I would say, and I'm not going to put up with it, and we're going to fight you. We're not going to get ensnared in the democratic uh, labyrinth uh, of punishment posing as process. 
Well, I don't know what access his attorneys have. have. Uh, I presume that they may have seen more than the rest of us have seen. And of course, obviously, it will be up to his legal team to make you know such uh, motions as they think are appropriate to change venue to a more neutral location, uh, to dismiss the charges for any number of reasons, to ask for recusal from uh, you know, a particular judge. Uh, you know, it's it's going to be messy and it's, and it's going to be loud. And and behind all of this, of course, is the fact that I, I do think the, the prosecutor's legal theory uh, is, is very flimsy and uh, one that he's going to have a tough time proving. Well, the FEC found nothing wrong with uh, the, the election, his his uh, how he spent his money. I'll put it that way. Uh, so where does where does the case, as we understand it, go from there? Yeah, so let's look at that. As, as we understand the case, and again, we haven't seen the indictment, but as we think it's going to fold out, all, all indications, the leaks and so on are that uh, the prosecutor wants to uh, get uh, the former president for violating a New York law and falsification of business records. But that's just a misdemeanor, and it's got a two-year statute of limitations that ran a long time ago, uh, and you can't do that. He wants so he wants to up it to a felony by tying it by arguing that the uh, falsification of business records was to cover up another crime. Well, what is that other crime? What appears to be a claim of uh, campaign finance violations, and that takes us to uh, Stephanie Clifford, aka Stormy Daniels, a uh, uh, an adult movie actress who says that at one time she had an affair uh, with uh, Trump about ten years before he was uh, president. Um, and in any case, uh, the, the Trump company, uh, through this lawyer, Michael Cohen, eventually paid her $130,000 to be quiet. Now, the argument that the prosecutor seems to make goes like this. The reason the Trump company paid that money was to help Trump's election. And the federal statute on campaign finance says that if something, something is in a contribution, if it is done for the purpose of influencing a federal election. So this was for the purpose of influencing an election and corporations cannot make contributions directly to candidate campaigns uh, and no more they have to report any campaign has to report things. So there you go. You've got two violations of federal law uh, case closed. The problem with that is that the federal law that says for the purpose of influencing and that's the key phrase was the was the expenditure for the purpose of influencing a campaign isn't about the subjective ideas that the spender or the donor might have. In other words, you know, if I go out today and decide, you know, it would really help Donald Trump be elected president or maybe help, help him lose the presidency, right? Either one. And I say, so I'm going to, I'm going to spend a bunch of money to run ads that say Donald Trump is a ding dong daddy from Dumas Bay. Right. And okay. You know, that's my purpose is to influence the election, but as, but it's not under the law a campaign expenditure uh, because it doesn't specifically go to the election. Or to be a little more realistic, even if I ran ads saying, you know, Donald Trump should not be indicted, arguably that might be done, you know, that my purpose is to is to help him win re-election. Or again, it could go the other way. Donald Trump should be indicted because, you know, my purpose is to help him make sure he doesn't win re-election, right? Either one is not a campaign expenditure. So what are campaign expenditures? They're objective things. There are things that you would do only if you're running a campaign. So for example, I, I pay rent on a campaign headquarters. A person doesn't do that if they're not running for office. You hire a campaign manager. A person doesn't do that if they're not running for office. You run ads saying vote for Brad Smith for Congress, right? You don't do that if you're not running for Congress. 
right? But other things that you might do to enhance your election are found both by, I think, the statute, by FEC regulation, and past court decisions not to be campaign contributions. So, for example, I want to uh, look really good in the debate. So I go out and I buy a $6,000 suit. Now, you know, I would never otherwise buy a $6,000 suit. So I'm buying this really nice, beautiful suit, custom tailored and all, just for the purpose of helping my campaign chances. Nonetheless, it's not considered a campaign expenditure because people buy clothes all the time. That's what you do. You know, you, you have to buy clothes. Uh, similarly, if I decide to have my teeth whitened so I look better on the campaign trail, that's not a campaign expenditure. Or to start to bring this closer to the Trump situation. You know, business people, as you know, often have lawsuits filed against them and against their companies, and some are meritorious and some are not. So let's say somebody who's a business person decides, I'm going to run for office. And he goes to his corporate legal counsel and he says, look, I know these lawsuits are hanging out there against my our business company. I think these are, are bogus lawsuits. I think they're, you know, a bunch of nonsense. But I don't want them out there. I don't want the press attacking me for them. So I want you to settle those. Right now, think about that. The only reason they're paying the settlement, which they have no legal obligation to pay, is because they want to, you know, they have the purpose of influencing the election subjectively. But objectively, under the statute, that's not a campaign expenditure. You can't use campaign funds to settle your personal debts or your corporate law debts just because doing so might help your campaign. So that's the problem, uh, or at least one problem, that the prosecutor, that the DA Bragg has in this case, uh, that, that he's, he's hinged all this on this idea that if it's for the purpose of influencing an election, then it's a violation of federal law. But that's, that's really not right. That purpose clause, again, doesn't go to his subjective view. It goes to an objective standard of whether or not this is a, 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 a campaign expenditure. And just to add a touch of icing on the cake, the FEC in its regulations has made very clear that the fact that one purpose of an expenditure is to uh, help a campaign or to influence a campaign uh, is not enough. It's not enough if it's primarily to for the purpose of influencing the campaign. It has to be an expenditure that exists only because one is campaigning. So, you know, one can take what they want about that, about, you know, uh, the former president's, you know, personal behavior, whether they believe Stormy Daniels or not, all these kinds of things. But it doesn't really matter. In the end, it's not a campaign expenditure, and the whole case, in my view, falls apart. So you also have a, a the star witness, Michael Cohen, is a convicted liar. He is, by other descriptions of attorneys who've worked with him, and including uh, uh, Robert Costello, a, a well-known, uh, powerful attorney in uh, New York, uh, sitting before the grand jury saying, point blank, he's a pathological liar, and that's your star witness for crying out loud. This, this, is, this is very thin stuff uh, to the point that it, it, it looks like a, an invention uh, in, in whole, it's an invention by the prosecutor. Yeah, the you know the the Cohen thing's interesting because of course Cohen pleaded guilty to a campaign finance violation for facilitating this transaction. So some people say, well, there you go, he's already pleaded guilty. But the, again, there's a number of problems with that. And I wrote back at the time, he just pleaded guilty to something that's that's not a crime. So think about Cohen's position. First, you've got Costello, who, if I remember right, is Costello or someone else who says that Cohen, you know, said, I will say whatever I have to to avoid jail. OK, mm -hmm. but then then take that beyond that. You know, what prosecutors often do is they stack up all these charges. So so Cohen was looking at staying in prison for the rest of his adult life. 
right? And instead, he takes a plea bargain where he pleads guilty to the campaign finance charge. And why that charge? Because that's the one the prosecutors want, because that's the one they can then link back to Trump and, and go after Trump. But that doesn't mean he actually really committed it, that they could prove it in a court of law. Um, and it doesn't have any precedential value there, right? Because nothing was proven in a court of law uh, that this was a violation of the statute. And again, I think the prosecutors are just reading the federal campaign statute in a way that's that's unsupported by, you know, the Supreme Court precedent, unsupported by FEC regulations, and and not really the most logical interpretation of the statute itself. Have you ever seen a more transparent case of prosecutorial abuse? Uh, in the political arena? <laughs> well, the uh, political arena is one area where prosecutors sometimes get carried away. But but let's let me just add this to maybe shed, answer that question indirectly. Think what would have happened had Trump used campaign funds to pay off Stormy Daniels. You know, I mean, we can't know for sure, but it sure feels to me like this prosecutor would then be accusing Trump of having misused campaign funds to pay for personal expenses. That is to pay off uh, you know, sort of legal threats or threats from this woman, Stormy Daniels. And and I think that's the, the nub of this. You know, they're, they're going to get you coming or going here is, is what we're looking at. And I think that is a very, you know, problematic situation for the rule of law. It, it really becomes the sort of situation where we decide, you know, who the, who the person we want to get is, and then we charge him. And if he does it, if he has the company pay for it, we charge him with an illegal campaign expenditure. If we have the campaign for, pay for it, then we would have charged him with an illegal campaign expenditure. Uh, and, and I just don't think you can do that. Yeah, I hope not, because it's the number of things one can't do in the legal system are being significantly reduced. Uh, this is this is just so outrageous. Watching these poll numbers, the way independents, uh, Republicans that we would other call, who we would otherwise call rhinos, are moving toward Trump and saying they're going to vote for him not only in the in the primaries but in the general election. I mean, it, by the time this gets to court, it looks like it could be that President Trump wins by uh, by unanimous acclamation. Uh, this is bizarre that we've gone this far. And, and it seems to be an effort to first, behind all of it, to keep him from running. And then the judge throws a gag order on him. Uh, so it's just one insult, one injury after the other to our political and legal systems. Yeah, I mean, we'll have to see the long-term, you know, political fallout. Uh, you know, one could envision uh, the prosecutors, I thought, is, look, this really uh, fires up the anti-Trump crowd, you know, that, that they want him to do this and they really want it done and uh, that that he thinks long-term, you know, this is enough. Some people seem to think that the Democrats want to run against Trump uh, and they think that the indictment will hurt. But as you pointed out, a lot of the polling data is sort of showing differently. I think a lot of Republicans just rally around a person they think has been treated unfairly, you know, who's on their team. And I think a lot of independents are kind of nervous about this. But, you know, public opinion you get, I mean, you've been around a long time, longer than I have, you know. I'm sorry. <laughs> but you've been around the block. You know what's Look, going I, on in D.C. And you I know how public opinion goes. We'll have to see. Professor, I won't hold your lack of experience uh, against you in any way. <laughs> uh, this, this does, though, seem to be such a, a, a contrivance uh, across the board. And as you say, public opinion is fickle. 
But the reality is that there is a constant in this, and that is the Marxist Dems who are now driving the Democratic Party uh, have have just turned the legal system, uh, well, they've corrupted it through and through. I know that we're supposed to not have, according to John Roberts, the Chief Justice, uh, Obama judges and Bush judges uh, or Republican judges and Democrat, but the, it is now clear. It is now in the open for all to see. There are Obama judges. There are uh, Bush judges. Uh, there are, thankfully, a few Trump judges. But yeah. we, we right now, we're watching decisions being made uh, on the political leanings and uh, biases, the partisan uh, views of juries and courts, and no better uh, a, a example than the Justice Department going after, with the aid of the Marxist Dems January 6th committee, going after citizens who were, first of all, publicly demonstrating their support for Donald Trump. What it grew into is another thing, but what it grew into was far less than anything those prosecutors are charging or judges are sentencing. I'd like to get your thoughts. Yeah, we. I, I do think it's a real concern. You know, there's, as you mentioned, uh, you know, look, some people I think on January 6th, you know, got out of line and, and should be prosecuted. Um, I'm not sure about the precise charges and whether they're overcharged, but but it appears that a, a significant number of people really didn't do much, but but enter the Capitol unhindered and then walk around it. And and there's an effort to to prosecute some of these people. We also see it, uh, you know, it, been in the news lately is this fellow named Doug Mackey or goes by Ricky Vaughn online, who way back in 2016 put out a, a meme post that just said, uh, hey, you know, uh, vote text Hillary at 59925 to vote for Hillary and be part of history. Um, and uh, it, there's no evidence that anybody was actually fooled by that. I don't know how much he thought he was joking, you know, but they're prosecuting him under an old law that was aimed at people who literally were, you know, beating up people trying to vote, lynching people trying to vote, blocking your ability to walk into the polls. And they're kind of going after him for this prank that apparently did not fool any actual voters uh, into voting. And, and he's facing, you know, years in prison. Um, so, so we have this sort of sense that, that, Things are not right. You know, I always thought one of the best things President Trump did, you know, when he ran for office at these rallies, people would chant lock her up about Hillary Clinton. And but when Clinton or when Trump took office, he said, look, we're not going to lock up Hillary Clinton. That's not what we do in this country. We don't go after our political rivals and try to put them in jail. You know, maybe that goes in the no good deed goes unpunished category now. Uh, I thought that was the proper approach for him to take. And and it certainly is not the kind of thing we're seeing now. We're seeing what, you know, you, you would think most people would say, okay, maybe you shouldn't have done that. Maybe a few people will face some minor, you know, uh, uh, legal uh, penalty. But what we're seeing is all out of proportion of that and seems to be an effort to sort of go after people with opposing political views. And, and I think it should be very troubling to people. It is right now a political system uh, that is, you know, you teach law, you are a, a highly respected professor and expert on uh, election law as well uh, as the legal system itself. I can't figure out any way out of this mess. I really cannot. Because the, the Marxist Dems have taken this country. They now control the federal government. They control the Senate. They control the the presidency they control the courts and they control obviously the department of justice and the fbi there's no other explanation for the way in which they've conducted themselves how 
do you get away from that? Because it is clear uh, that right now there are no obvious institutional governmental uh, visions of the founders that contemplated this and created machinery uh, to to right vast wrongs. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, it, it, it is really troubling, as you suggest, Lou, um, uh, to be, you know, kind of breaking these these barriers down. Like I say, that's why I thought that, that uh, you know, President Trump's response to the Hillary Clinton thing to say, look, we're not going to try to prosecute this woman was the right one. At some point, people have to be willing to de-escalate. But at this point, what we're clearly seeing is the Democrats are not de-escalating; they're they're escalating. And and by the way, it goes into lots of other little areas. For example, you know, after January sixth, uh, well, first there was the you know the whole committee, and they wouldn't let the Republicans appoint people to the committee and so on. But then also, remember, they kept like what was it like three thousand National Guard troops in the Capitol for like three months. You know, what was the purpose of that other than to intimidate people, I think? And I, I you know, the, the constant hype about uh, disinformation and these efforts to block that, which uh, apparently include, we see more and more sort of government-related contacts to that. All of this to me is is very disturbing. And, you know, I think ultimately, you know, the, the people are going to have to revolt at the polls. And unfortunately, if they, if they don't do that, um, the, we're going to get more of this. And it's, it's going to be, as you say, very, very difficult to unwind. You know, after this, it's going to be very difficult for Republican prosecutors not to go after Democrats. It might be good if they didn't, but their base is going to say, hey, it's our turn. Moreover, you don't want to be a sap. You don't want to say, well, we're not going to prosecute your guys. Democrats come back into power and prosecute our guys. You know, you can't have that sort of scenario. So um, I, I think uh, that Mr. Bragg, the DA there, you know, maybe he did think this through, but you kind of feel like, did he really think about what's kind of good for the country? What's what's the best thing uh, to do here? And I'm, I'm afraid the answer either is no, he didn't or or yes, he did, but made a terribly wrong conclusion. And it's and it's going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah, the, the to me, there is no question. We all form our opinions and I'm I'm being a, having an opinion as part of my craft. Uh, it's very difficult to imagine that Bragg had either good counsel or much judgment of any kind. Uh, his obvious animus toward President Trump uh, and that of his, uh, including his wife, who uh, was quite a, uh, a, tw uh, a Twitter uh, maven. Uh, it's just it's just terrible for the country. And we are. And what really bothers me, Professor, is I don't see anyone as in business standing up and saying, you know, the country's got to do better than this. I don't see anyone in academia saying, you know, uh, respected scholars and social critics, uh, if we have any remaining, that is, social critics, uh, saying, you yeah, know, yeah. we really can't do this. Historians with any kind of gravitas. Instead, they're all partisans, uh, and they are, you know, they're braying at the moon. Uh, like uh, the most, uh, you know, fevered uh, partisan uh, in either party. Yeah, you know, I think back to two New York senators who served uh, consecutive terms. In fact, one replaced the other. And I don't know why they're the two that come to mind, but, you know, where is the Democrats, Daniel Moynihan or someone like mm -hmm. that will come up and say, look, this should stop. We should not be doing this. And and the other thing about it is the man he replaced, James Buckley, a uh, conservative Republican who never had, you know, who would have said the same thing, I'm sure. I've, I knew James Buckley a bit or know him a bit. And, and 
you know, there's no way that he would have said this is the right way to handle this. And where are those kinds of responsible leaders who would just put, you know, the, the country's interest here ahead of that that partisanship and, and be willing to stand up to their own base and say, look, you got to calm down. You know, <laughs> um, we you know, Donald Trump is not the president uh, and, you know, we're not going to go after him on this uh, charge. You know, one thing we haven't even talked about, Lou, is the the statute of limitations on this charge. By by trying to ratchet up to a felony in the way he has, the prosecutor gets a longer five-year statute of limitations. But that is also dubious because, you know, five years, more than that has gone by since 2016. His theory appears to be, again, we haven't seen the documents, but it appears to be that somehow that statute of limitations was told either while the president was serving in office or when he's been out of the state. I don't know. But, you know, so even on that, we start with a, you know, before we get into the substance of the complaint, we have a, a, a questionable uh, issue of whether or not he's within the statute of limitations. I just don't see how a responsible prosecutor would have brought this case. And I, I think it's a very bad precedent. Let me ask you, is there anything about this prosecution, this decision to indict, uh, that strikes you as valid, meritorious, uh, and, and proper? Well, <laughs> no, not really. I mean, the most most I could say is that uh, assuming that that Mr. Bragg believes his theory, and and by the way, it's not you know it's it's not an absolutely insane theory, right? I mean, there you know you can look at for the purpose of influencing the election and try to read it the way he has. Um, you know, that's probably the best that can be be said for it. As I say, I fear that they would have gone after Trump, whether he was coming or going. They would have either said it's an illegal use of campaign funds or it's an illegal use of private funds uh, to do this. And, and I don't think the answer can can be both. Uh, so. Uh, no, I, I just don't think there is much to go on. And I, I raised the point I raised earlier, you know, to this argument that no one is above the law. Well, ask yourself if you think somebody running for, for city council in New York would be being prosecuted for this in this way, you know, with all the questions about the statute of limitations and the underlying, you know, theory of a federal violation, which they're going to have to kind of try a lawsuit within a lawsuit uh, where the FEC chose not to prosecute that and so on. Uh, I, I don't think that that other people would be being prosecuted for this. So I don't think this is a question of showing no one is above the law. I think what we're actually showing is that if you want to target somebody, you can and get away with it. And I think that's bad. It's terrible. And no one being above the law is obviously a fiction. All we have to do is look at uh, uh, Paul Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi, uh, Hillary and Bill Clinton uh, and uh a fellow by the name of Joe Biden uh, in what seems to be a family enterprise that uh, is somewhat breathtaking in the amount of revenue they generated uh, offshore, as they say. Uh, yeah, I mean, nobody knows, knows you know, whether he's guilty or not there because we haven't had any kind of trial. But you sure don't see, see much interest in exploring that, do you? <laughs> not a lot of it, prosecutorial energy, no. Uh, four years, uh, Hunter Biden has been under, quote-unquote, investigation. Uh, it is it is a sad, sad moment we live in uh, for both the law and for our, our, great, our great society uh, and uh, a great president who is uh, being treated uh, horribly uh, by a system that is not uh, either mature or bright enough to figure out checks and balances uh, when dealing with this much evil, uh, such obvious evil. We always, Professor, give our, our guests the, uh, the, the last word here. So your concluding thoughts, if you would, sir. 
My concluding thoughts is the prosecution is based on a, a exceedingly questionable legal theory, questionable at a couple of different points, uh, and is a real abuse of, of prosecutorial judgment, if not if not completely prosecutorial discretion. And uh, I'll just leave it at that. And I thank you, Lou, for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Professor Bradley Smith, Capital University Law School. And thanks, everybody, for being with us here tomorrow will be former Manhattan Assistant District Attorney Amir Benno. He's an appellate and constitutional law attorney. Please join us here tomorrow for that and more. Till then, God bless you, and God bless America.